Picnic started in 2015 with a very simple observation. that people actually want to shop for food online, but don't want to pay more than in the offline variant. So therefore, we found a way to actually deliver groceries at the lowest price and no delivery fees. We have a very simple design principle. Every product gets only one time touched by a human, which means a product in order to move it across the warehouse needs to be touched by somebody or something, uh, usually between 10 to 15 times. So these 14, 15 other touch points need to be done by a robot. Business is technology, technology is business. So there is essentially, you will not hear anybody talking about business or technology in specific terms because everything is very closely uh, connected to each other. In the same way as we have also organized our teams that in every team there is certainly the technology aspects represented but also the business aspects because both together only can succeed. This is CRNet TV. My name is Hendrik Deckers. I'm here today with Daniel Gebler who is the founder and CTO of Picnic. A very warm welcome, Daniel. Thanks a lot for having me. Daniel, you have a degree in computer science, a master's degree, and an MBA from the Technical University of Dresden. You started your career as a software developer at Fred Hopper, uh, where you became the director of R&D. Then you did a PhD and you were a researcher at the Vrije Universiteit of Amsterdam, where we are today. And you founded Picnic in 2015, and you hold today the position of CTO. Uh, so, Daniel, tell us a little bit more about yourself. What's really your background? Who are you really? And how did you arrive in this position? Awesome question. So, my nerd path actually started as a kid where I was falling in, uh, in love with computers. Uh -huh. And I see really not only the capabilities what computers can do, but also the creativity to build something new, mm -hmm. to unlock new business models. Yep. And that drove me basically uh, to study computer science, uh, to be part of a B2B business like uh, Fredapper, to build a recommendation engine, uh -huh. but now also starting a business like Picnic, mm -hmm. where we are revolutionizing uh, the entire food tech ecosystem. Okay, so you're originally from Germany, and now you live and work in Amsterdam, correct? That is correct. Okay, so tell us a little bit more about Picnic. I know that you're active in three different markets, but maybe some people have never heard about Picnic. Give us the big picture. So Picnic itself started in 2015 with a very simple uh, observation mm -hmm. that people actually want to shop for food online but, actually, but don't want to pay more than in the offline variant. So therefore, we found a way to, uh, to actually deliver groceries at the lowest price and no delivery fees. But this is only the starting point because what you then realize is if you deliver to so many households, to so many customers, mm -hmm. then you can do so much door uh, at the doorstep of the customer that we are now looking into what comes next after the kind of food proposition. Okay, so you are an online only retailer, correct? That is correct. Okay, and you started in 2015. Tell us a little bit about your, uh, uh, the business side. You were funded, you did a couple of rounds. Can you tell us that, that part of the story as well? So we collected a little bit of kind of money uh, pre-launch mm -hmm. uh, and then I built the very first version of Picnic, which was in Amersfoort, so a city not so far from Amsterdam, mm -hmm. where we figured out that um, if you're approaching customers with a proposition that where we say lowest price, free delivery, good service at the door, mm -hmm. then actually customers will move from offline to online. And the opportunity was huge mm -hmm. because only one and a half percent of all, custom, uh, all people at this time were shopping online. So we saw this, what can we do 
to move from one and a half to two to three to five to ten because that is the real opportunity. And then uh, we basically build a proposition around it, mm -hmm. build the technology, first consumer tech, afterwards logistical supply chain tech. Yep. And by now we are already operating in three countries, have two million customers in Netherlands, a million in Germany, and already quite a few also in France. Okay, what's the revenue size, the people size? Um? So last year we did uh, roughly a billion on revenue mm -hmm. and have by now also uh, raised quite a bit of money. So the last round was an investment by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation of 600 million. Mm -hmm. And that allows us actually to go beyond our fulfillment, manual fulfillment that we have built uh, over the first years. Mm -hmm. We have built a fully robotized fulfillment center mm -hmm. as we speak now. Yeah. And uh, that allows us to actually serve even more customers in a faster and a more efficient way. Okay, and what's, what's the out? The outlook, what's the ambition? I mean, you're active in Germany, Holland, a little bit in France. You want to conquer the world. What's the, what's the focus for the next five, ten years? So there are basically three things that, uh, that are interesting uh, for us. The proposition and the business model that we have built works everywhere where there is not too much snow and where it's not too hot. So everything below the snow line and above the uh, Sahara works very well for us. This is number one, so uh, geographical expansion. Mm -hmm. Number two is if you have a very efficient forward logistics uh, supply chain, then you can think about what comes next. So one example for us is we have started also with a return logistics. So if you order, for instance, over a fashion retailer mm -hmm. like Zalando or any other, mm -hmm. uh, your fashion, then you typically order five pairs of jeans. You keep one and you send four back. All of us are doing this. But what is not nice for a customer uh, to find back a kind of a postal service to return. Yeah. Uh, it is not nice for uh, the merchant because it is expensive. And basically everybody is losing this game. So what we actually developed is a technology that you can send also your fashion back over picnic to the merchant. Okay. So you're going to be part of the whole logistic chain to the, to, well, to the last mile to, the, to the, the customer's door, right? Exactly. So what we do is, uh, while we started with this uh, food forward logistics, mm -hmm. we are now moving into an entire logistic platform player mm -hmm. that allows to deliver even more services to customers yeah. at the door. In my research, I was quite impressed with the number of awards that you already won. Can you name a few that, uh, that you've had so far? So there's obviously quite a few awards and uh, it, it's hard to single out uh, some. So we started with kind of the, the let's say the fastest growing startup, the most impressive tech company, uh, the fastest growing company in the country, etc. But what kept us, uh, what was really an important award for us is also an award which is actually reflecting on our customer service. Because we're coming, we are serving a retail audience yeah. where retail actually usually is not such a kind of an exciting and a customer-oriented type of business. Obviously, you sell to customers, so you are focused on customer revenue, but customer service has been for a long time not focused of, uh, of retail. And we actually brought customer service in an exceptional way to the doorstep of the customer. Okay, and what's the percentage in the Netherlands, for instance, of online retailing compared to the total market of retail and how do you see that evolve in the future? So if you look to non-food retail, uh, then we are talking easily about 20, 30, 40, 50% already, already online. So in categories like, uh, for instance, electronics, books, uh, fashion is around 20%, electronics is above 50%. If you look to food, we are still talking about uh, something like five to seven percent online. So there is a 95% opportunity mm -hmm. to still uh, move towards online. And if you look now to other countries, and that is the real interesting comparison, in US you have 20% already in food online. In uh, China you have 30% of food online. So there's certainly a good indication as that uh, we in Europe can certainly also yeah. uh, catch up. 
So the opportunity is massive then. So uh, who are the main competitors for you then? That's the Carrefour's, the, the, the Ahol's and so on, the, the traditional retailers? So there are certainly, uh, it's, it's a very big space and there are many, uh, many operating this space. So there's yep. on the one hand, uh, the traditional retailers that have built up also an online proposition. There are online pure players uh, like uh, Mealbox services. There are quick commerce players. So there's a very, very diverse kind of uh, playing field by now. Mm -hmm. But actually the biggest competition that we have seen is, is the habit of people. Mm -hmm. And uh, our main audience is our families. And if as a family uh, you have been uh, for 20 years going regularly to a physical supermarket, yeah. you will do exactly the same also tomorrow. So breaking this kind of habit or having a proposition that convinces you yeah. to adopt a new habit, to start online shopping instead of offline, yeah. that is our real competition that we have. Okay. Let's talk about a little bit about retail industry in general today. We live in special times, geopolitical, uh, turmoil, war, uh, inflation, maybe a recession around the corner and so on. Really special times. What do you see as the major challenges in retail and uh, today and how does that reflect on picnic? So customers are certainly much more um, alert on what do they pay, which kind of products they buy and how often are they buying. Yeah. So therefore we are seeing certainly that there is a kind of a pressure from bottom uh, where uh, from the top mm -hmm. where customers that have previously bought premium products are now more looking into value products. Mm -hmm. That is absolutely the case. On the other hand, there is certainly also much more promo pressure where customers are looking for promos. How can they save a little bit of more money? Mm -hmm. However, and that is the more interesting trend, is that is combined with a general trend to move from offline to online. And that is absolutely stable as it has been always. So therefore we are working along a kind of a stable trend to move from offline to online retail, mm -hmm. while there's certainly all kind of external factors that are making e-commerce a little bit harder these days. Okay. So, I mean, you started only seven years ago, 2015. So it must have been an, an incredible ride going from, from, from zero to a billion revenue in, uh, in seven years. Where do you see the major challenges or the opportunities, but the challenges for Picnic as a company today? So let me start with, with the opportunities, uh, because in a sense, every challenge is only an interesting challenge if you can translate this in an opportunity. Mm -hmm. So the opportunities uh, for us are that while everybody is shopping with us, the kind of the basic products, mm -hmm. how can we transform this also to shopping with us uh, more the kind of premium products or the meals or maybe non-food kind of items? That is a certainly a kind of an interesting opportunity. Mm -hmm. What is more is, as we are seeing all our customers once, twice, three times per week, mm -hmm. then you can think of uh, and dream a little bit about what is actually an interesting service that you can deliver at the door that goes beyond our retail proposition. Yeah. And the third part is, when you're serving two million customers in a single country, how do you can how can you do this in a very efficient way? So that's the reason why we're building on those kind of fulfillment automation concepts mm -hmm. in food that at this moment nobody has built. Yeah. So this is an entire new way of automating fulfillment that is pretty common already in the non-food world. So Amazon and a few other players have done this in, mm -hmm. a, in a very impressive way, but nobody has done this in a significant way in food. And that is something where we're really at the forefront. Okay, super. Let's talk a bit more about technology because that's your responsibility here in the, in the business today. Uh, and you told me that you're working on a, a complete end-to-end -end automation of the supply chain. What is that you're gonna do there? So it starts first of all with understanding how a product's flowing from a farm to the consumer, so farm to fork type of uh, thinking, mm -hmm. where we started with 
clearly tracking on when is something harvested, how is, does it go through the kind of the different distribution and fulfillment centers up to the doorstep of the customers in our, with our last mile proposition. And then you think about conceptually, number one, is how can you completely integrate this? So basically building in a kind of an entire tech integrated system end-to-end. Uh, -end. Yep. But on the other hand, is also which elements make sense to automate. So one example is in a fulfillment center, you do obviously a lot of tasks. Everybody is aware that at some point you need to pick a product and put it in the, in the box for the customer. But that is only somewhere between three to 5% of the, the work that is happening in a fulfillment center. So we started to optimize the 95% uh, that is also happening while mm -hmm. the picking itself is still done by the humans. So picking in a banana or picking an avocado mm -hmm. is so complex that humans are actually significantly better Mm -hmm. then you can do uh, a kind of a robotized automation. So therefore, yeah. we will, for quite a while, keep this also, uh, let's say, a human-empowered process. Yeah, until Elon Musk brings you the robots that can do them in, uh, in, in more... Oh, we will develop ways. ourselves. Uh, that is That's a, even a better option. idea. Yes. Okay. So you're, you're building this completely automated supply chain. What does that mean on, 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 on a technical level? What, are, what kind of systems are you implementing for that? So there is... On the one hand, we are talking about an integration of uh, systems across the entire supply chain. Mm -hmm. But what is even more exciting is that you are building an also vertical integration of a software stack. So normally in retail, you're talking about cloud services that are uh, predicting demand, that are doing fulfillment planning, uh, fulfillment operations, etc. Mm -hmm. But if you're talking about an end-to-end -end automation, you're also integrating in very low-level control, so in drones, in robots, in a kind of conveyor belts, mm -hmm. which, are, which is a completely different type of, type of tech stack. So you're talking about uh, PLCs, uh, which is technology from the 1780s. There's nothing of this in the cloud. You're talking about latencies that are sub one milliseconds, which means that in this case, for instance, we cannot work with a cloud deployment. So we need to have an on-premise deployment. Okay. However, our entire stack, rest of the stack is in the cloud. So we are building load balancing between cloud and on-prem logic, where we also dynamically move applications to the cloud or back on-prem. So what others are doing in, uh, let's say, traditional businesses with lift and shift, which takes a month, we are doing in, in, in seconds in order to move kind of a traffic between the cloud and on-prem. So Daniel, let's go a little bit deeper uh, in, into this. So for us mere humans, how do we need to understand that? What's, what's, what's exactly the, the, the different processes that you're automating, the systems that you're putting in place for that? So let me take an example of a fulfillment center. So in the morning, you have around between one and two million items that come, uh, come to the warehouse in kind of big packs. So 24, 36, uh, 48 type of packs of Coke or of milk, etc. Yep. And then it goes through the warehouse and a couple of uh, processes up to a storage location of uh, those kind of items. Mm -hmm. And then at some point, it goes from a storage location to a pick location where it gets picked into the order of a customer. All this kind of movements of items, we have a very simple design principle. Every product gets only one time touched by a human, which means a product in order to move it across mm -hmm. the warehouse needs to be touched by somebody or something, yep. uh, usually between 10 to 15 times. So these 14, 15 other touch points need to be done by a robot, either on a variable, by a big robot mm -hmm. or in a storage location. And the planning software that, we, uh, that we're building there is planning the entire day ahead. Okay. But this is such a huge planning problem that is comparable to, uh, for instance, the logistical planning that is happening in a city like New York when Uber is driving around with their taxis. Because you're also moving, you're planning how people can connect uh, to the taxis or taxis to the, uh, to the people. And uh, that is something what we do then in a warehouse where you get connected to a product and to the robot that is bringing the robot to you. Okay.
So I can imagine that there's no off-the-shelf software available to do all of this. So that's all own development, in-house development that you're doing for that. So we look quite a bit into space and there are certainly solutions that have started to build us. But uh -huh. when we are deciding on a make a build versus buy, mm -hmm. we are actually looking very much into where can our own solution be in two or three years time versus where can a market solution be in two yeah. or three years time. And what we realized is we can certainly build in a reasonable time frame a solution that is comparable to the solution that is now available in the market, but we can be so much faster outpace the kind of the market solutions that we build, especially this kind of technology in-house. Okay, so you have a huge software factory here then? Uh, we like to call it not factory, but indeed we have a large <laughs> software team. So uh -huh. we have now a little bit more than 300 developers mm -hmm. that work on things like uh, our robotized fulfillment center, but also on the consumer proposition, on uh, many uh, kind of machine learning tools that we see across our entire consumer yeah. and supply chain. So I'm very fascinated about your amazing growth rate. Uh, so in seven years from, from zero to a billion revenue, that also means from, from just you starting it and maybe with a, uh, with, with a couple of friends. And, and then you build, if you just look at the IT team, 300 people now. So how do you build uh, an IT team and a digital team from zero to 300? What are the different steps? What are the, the milestones in, in building a team like that? So there are many milestones that you need to go through, but what is pretty clear is that every six to nine months, you need to organize and reorganize yourself in a very fundamental way because you have reached a new growth step. And that means on the one hand, you need to have a different organization. So that means different type of products, a different type of uh, organization around the product teams, mm -hmm. different leadership also, yeah. different type of engineers, different skill levels. But it means also for myself and for the leadership team that you need to reinvent ourselves. So a Daniel in 2015 was a very kind of different Daniel in uh, yeah. 2018. Because leading a team in 2018, we had around 50 to 70 engineers. Yeah. Uh, is a very different type of leadership that you need uh, there. Whereas in uh, 2015, when you just uh, are five engineers and try to yeah. basically hack something together. Mm -hmm. And the stages that I went myself through are essentially the stages where I've been a lead engineer and at some point I have been an architect, at some point more kind of a project manager or program manager. Mm -hmm. And by now it is more kind of a tech strategist that is looking on the one hand still ahead for quite some time. So mm -hmm. usually three to five years as a planning horizon. But on the other hand, also is very practically involved in projects that are happening on a day-by-day -day basis. I love to also write a little bit of code or uh, be reviewing code, etc. Yeah. So where do you position yourself today still at on, on the nerd scale? If, if zero is, I don't know what code is all about, I only manage the people and, and finances and tennis, I still program myself on a, on a, on a regular basis. I hope and uh, uh, hope that I can myself still position on a five. Uh, <laughs> when I ask the team here, then I'm probably more on a, on a two or whatever. <laughs> but uh, it depends a little bit also on, on uh, in which kind of area and domain I go in. When I'm talking to, to other CTOs and CIOs in the, the industry, then I say typically position me uh, more on a 10 <laughs> compared to, to maybe the rest of the industry. Yeah. But uh, by itself, it is certainly a kind of a balancing act between uh, software management, team management, and more kind of tech strategy. Mm -hmm. uh, while uh, the kind of the day-to-day -day building, I'm certainly not involved in everything uh, what a team of 300 people is doing. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the, the software stack that you uh, already mentioned. And uh, I, uh, I understood that you made some major transformations in that. Tell us, t tell us what was the problem and how did you solve, uh, how did you solve that? 
So um, we started in uh, 2015 with a very narrow tech stack for the simple for two reasons. Number one is maintenance is easier if you have only one single single pro uh, programming language, one cloud provider, one underlying platform that you're uh, that you're building on. And it has actually a second uh, big advantage. It makes you extremely scalable on how you can reprioritize in your organization. Because you can actually make uh, your engineers move between different product teams because every team has roughly the same stack. Yep. So that's great. Um, at some point, we realized that we need to put even more focus also on the data side, not only on the software side. So therefore, we built a data warehouse, machine learning, deep learning kind of tools. Mm -hmm. Also, Python became an important uh, part of our software stack. Yep. And then uh, when we had a pretty significant set of machine learning and deep learning tools, mm -hmm. uh, it became clear that we need to rethink our entire software architecture. And then we transitioned to what we now call a SODA architecture, software and data architecture, where every service that we build, for instance, our consumer app or our customer service solution or any other kind of a product is actually half software, hard-coded business rules, and half uh, data, which means typically machine learning tools, mm -hmm. which are trained models that embody a kind of a business logic based on a trained kind of a trained customer data. Mm -hmm. And what we are looking there into is how can the performance of a system improve by just having more data in the system. So there is a feedback loop uh, that is always feeding back on a daily basis data in the system that may improves the performance of the system for the next day. Okay. Let me make it very concrete as an example. So if we are now delivering today to here in Netherlands a, a couple of hundred thousand customers, mm -hmm. then we will simply take this entire set of deliveries that we did today, actuals versus plan, feed it in the system, train the system based on what can we learn from this, at which kind of address, with which kind of effort conditioner, at which kind of daytime um, did we deliver on time, and at which ones did we not, and mm -hmm. what is the delta, and what is the reason of the delta, such that tomorrow, if we do a planning, we can even more accurately plan for those kind of deliveries. Okay. And so you changed to, um, to a software and data uh, architecture. What's, what's, the, I mean, what's the implication? What, what did you really need to change? software-wise, and, and, and what are the outcomes? What are the results of that? So the starting point is that we moved from a single software stack, uh, mainly uh, based on uh, Java and AWS, etc., to a kind of a dual stack where uh, the entire data side is based on uh, Python and the respective uh, Python stack, mm -hmm. where we need to build all kind of bridges uh, between the Java and the Python stack. So that is uh, the number one. Number two is, our entire software design and software modeling and product management mm -hmm. is now taking into account not only the requirements of a feature, but something what is even more fundamental. And that is we are, pro uh, we are projecting for every feature what is the future performance if we have 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times more customers in this specific uh, region, etc. If a system is not becoming significantly more performant with more customers or more deliveries or more data points, mm -hmm. then we will not build it. Because this is a kind of a self-optimizing loop uh, or kind of also competitive advantage mm -hmm. that you build with more data that is actually even stronger than any software, software system that you ever can build. So you want, you, you are, you want, you are building software systems with the qualification that they need to become more clever the more data you put in there. They need to be self-optimizing along the time with more data, which means if you look a bit on uh, how you invest from, from a technology perspective, mm -hmm. um, we want that so the performance of software systems are improving without additional software development. Mm -hmm. 
Additional op operation is basically yep. what generates data, yep. but not with additional software development. This is the holy grail of really reaping a kind of a larger customer set. Otherwise, you're just building, yep. you, you're performing according to the kind of the initial build of the software system. So does that mean that you have one big team of software engineers and one big team of data engineers? Or? That's exactly how we started. So there's a couple of software uh, teams uh, and then a couple of data teams. Mm -hmm. What becomes clear is if you're structurally thinking so much as a kind of a combined software data teams, mm -hmm. then as a first step, we brought all kind of software and data engineers together in this team where basically you have always full stack teams, including data engineers. But now uh, the mentality is also that every software engineer is also data engineer and every data engineer is software engineer. Okay. And the next step, what we have done now is when you're designing new systems, we are thinking no longer from a software architectural perspective. Software architecture is the second objective. We are thinking from a data architecture perspective. The first thing what we design for a new data system is always the data model. And software is uh, always built around it, but the data model is at core mm -hmm. for every system that we build. Okay. And so how would you, yeah, do you have an idea how you compare with the other retailers, the, the big brands around in, 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 in on that data front? I mean, if you compare with the Carrefour's or, or uh, I mean, I've been talking to the CIOs of Carrefour, so that's, that's uh, why. Do you have an idea where you position yourself there? So most of those kind of players, and it's very hard for me to, to make a kind of a chart, mm -hmm. but uh, obviously uh, we, we have a pretty decent perspective. Um, many of them are still on the, on the level of collecting data, mm -hmm. making efficient data warehousing, data lakes out of it, yep. and making a data-driven uh, decision process about what to build next. Yep. Uh, I have not seen, especially in this kind of more traditional uh, world, that anybody is already thinking about how can data in, in kind of an automated way be a performance uh, accelerator. Mm -hmm. And can you tell us what the results are of having this architecture where uh, data comes first and the data architecture comes first? Can you measure the, the result of that? You certainly can. Uh, so we have uh, deployed this in a, in a couple of cases. So an example is if you're looking now a year back, so we had uh, some challenges around uh, fraud. So especially if you uh, start introducing credit cards, uh, then uh, you will certainly also need to uh, learn how to handle fraud. Uh, we had uh, challenges around untimely deliveries and certainly also around uh, recommending which kind of products uh, customers were buying. And what we saw along this kind of journey is that, for instance, we halved the amount of fraud that we saw in our systems. We also halved the untimeliness. Mm -hmm. So basically uh, twice as often uh, we were on time, etc. Yeah. So these are massive improvements that are, and, and what is even more con uh, encouraging is that over time we see even, even the system improves further just by having additional, more kind of payment transactions in this case, or having more kind of deliveries to customers. And can you quantify how much money that you saved or that you made extra by having this architecture and, and systems in place? At this moment, uh, it is hard to put uh, really in concrete mm -hmm. numbers, but this is certainly uh, more on the level of uh, six, seven, eight digits. That is a significant amount of numbers. Okay, so it's millions of euros that you certainly. can can make extra or bottom line or, or in, in, in cost or whatever. And Just imagine uh, about the revenue that we do on an annual basis. Yep. Uh, and if you then uh, reduce fraud uh, from uh, something like 1% to half a percent, then yep. you certainly talk about the significant numbers. Okay. So Daniel, thank you for sharing these these insights on on, on where you uh, where you are in your software development and um, uh, and and what your teams are focusing on today. Um, 
out of personal interest, what's, what's your vision on, um, on, on a couple of new trends that we see in software development with RPA, low code, no code? What's your vision on that? First, I love actually that the industry thinks about how to get a larger part of society into mm -hmm. building software. Yeah. I love building software, but had to go through a pretty lengthy kind of education process. If it can enable more people to express their creativity of a system mm -hmm. uh, with less effort that is certainly uh, something what I appreciate. Yep. In our own context, um, what we have learned is that low-code and um, no-code is, um, is something that works in isolation relatively well, but has the limitation that the transition from a low-code, no-code solution towards a kind of full-scale production system is very, very painful. So therefore, we are thinking always in kind of a productization processes that somebody is expressing an MVP or a prototype in some language is yep. then uh, making kind of first scale version in another language and then uh, is making a full scale uh, version. And that uh, simply didn't work in our context with low code, no code. Okay. However, what we have done in this case is that we have built our own uh, no code, no code uh, type of okay. platform based on a uh, reduced version or a limited version of Python, which we call a kind of an edge system environment mm -hmm. where analysts can express in Python or a sub-language of a Python uh, their ideas. So that is good enough that everybody who has been going through an econometric studies or kind mm -hmm. of mathematical studies can express their ideas, uh, also, also run this as a prototype. And in the next phase, we are moving this into kind of a software system and then I make out of the software system a SODA system, so software and data, yep. and they're making a real kind of full-scale solution for, for all our customers. Okay. So you have about 300 people in, in, in your IT, your digital team. How, do, how is it organized? How do you set up the different teams? You say that you reorganize every six, nine months. So what's the current organization? So if we now go maybe uh, six or nine months back, uh, we had the situation and environment where we had around 200 engineers mm -hmm. and that which meant around 20 product teams and all of them have been reporting the leadership has been reporting to me mm -hmm. which uh, meant in practice that we had around 45 uh, reports uh, made me a very busy man <laughs> and was how, however had a very very big advantage because if you have so many direct reports essentially they don't report to somebody um, <laughs> um, uh, and I myself focused every week on um, three to five teams where I worked a little bit closer with and the rest was completely autonomously working on uh, uh, kind of the objective or the key results that's very yeah. rare, uh, set, that they set for the quarter. What we have now is we have still the product teams with a dual leadership team, a product owner and a tech lead, okay. uh, usually also uh, with an OKR, so an objective key result for, for a quarter. Mm -hmm. And we have organized those kind of 30, 40 teams in four bigger clusters, we call them uh, domains. Okay. So there's one which is the entire consumer stack, one is the entire supply chain stack, one is all our data solutions, and the fourth one is what we call foundation, which is kind of platform type of uh, solutions. Okay. And those kind of four domains are roughly uh, uh, one quarter from the size uh, of the entire tech team. Uh -huh. And uh, that has an own leadership team around product, tech and engineering. Uh, so now you only have to manage four people then? Uh, there's, uh, with the four domains, uh, there's now two or three leads per domain. So there's still around uh, 10 to 12, but it is certainly much more manageable. Okay. And, and, and today, where do you spend today most of your time? What are your, if you look at your agenda, what are you most busy with these days? It's a very good question. Eh? And obviously uh, in too many cases on too many kind of incidents or more kind of, uh, kind of uh, short-term ad hoc topics. But if I look a little bit to the kind of bigger topics that I'm uh, working on is mm -hmm. 
what is our long-term strategy in the next three to five years. Yep. Uh, also planning how to break down this kind of longer-term strategy into a more actionable goals that we can uh, achieve uh, in a year's time. And also being very closely involved in our strategic developments. So a strategic development is for us, for instance, this entire robotization of fulfillment where we run uh, two or three kind of major work streams. Yeah. So that is uh, certainly a larger part of the team where I'm uh, involved uh, together with the program manager. Okay. And how is the executive executive team organized? I mean, I, I can imagine you're a driving force in there, but who are the main players in the executive team? So our um, MT, so the management team itself, uh, consists of uh, five people. So I'm uh, representing the tech side. Mm -hmm. uh, there's somebody who is representing the entire ops side. So there's somebody who's uh, commercial. And then there's somebody who's uh, representing the entire uh, kind of brand and customer side. And finance. And uh, finance is essentially a part of a shared responsibility. We have also dedicated a CFO, uh, but uh, he is certainly also representing the entire finance side. Yeah. Okay. So, 1 billion revenue last year, big company already. Was it 50,000 people that work here on, uh, on, on, uh, on a daily basis? Headquarters, 500, IT, uh, 300 people. I understand your IT budget is around 5%, is that correct? So, the entire organization is now 15,000 people, but indeed, uh, we have around 500 people here, uh, 300 at uh, headquarters, uh, yep. 300 are in uh, tech. So budget is around this uh, yep. type of size. What we do is we are not setting kind of a fixed budget uh, for mm -hmm. technology, but we are looking on every initiative basis on uh, the actual business case. Yep. And if there is a sensible business case uh, for a little bit more spend than we will simply do, yep. um, it is very much uh, looking into what is the additional market opportunity that we can capture. Yep. And then we uh, reason basically backwards from the opportunity to what does it need uh, need to happen uh, today? And there's tomorrow. no IT budget. There's only business projects. Business is technology. Technology is business. So there is essentially we are also you will not hear anybody talking about business or technology in specific terms yeah. because everything is very closely uh, connected to each other. Okay. The same way as we have also organized our teams, that in every team there is certainly the technology aspects represented, but also the business aspects because both together only can succeed. Okay, and so how? easy is it? How difficult is it for you to build this team here? I mean, we're in the middle of it here, so, so how easy is it for you to attract top talent, to keep your uh, talent? I mean, we're Amsterdam of all places, so, uh, so how do you attract top talent here uh, to, to an online retailer um, in Amsterdam? So finding the right people is hard for everybody. Yep. So that is, uh, so this is not easy for Google, this is not easy for Picnic. However, if you have a nice proposition, meaning if you work on something that is meaningful mm -hmm. for your talent that comes in, and that is challenging enough that everybody can grow, then people will come. So I think that is something we have to some extent figured out. Yep. But it's, it stays hard work, number one. Number two, retention is even a more interesting uh, topic. Because if somebody is now for two, three, four years uh, working uh, on uh, specific topics, then he or she wants to actually also grow further. Yep. So therefore, we started in a very structural way also to build up a people strategy and uh, people analytics uh, to mm -hmm. really see how we can help everybody to reach the next level in the organization. And that is something uh, uh, where we have put a lot of focus on now to really build the next generation of Picnic that will drive Picnic even to, to higher heights. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about your, your management style. I mean, making sure that, that your teams are successful. What's, what's your secret of success there? So first of all, I'm asking every team to define success for themselves. So what means success for them? So I have obviously uh, 
on a kind of a broader picnic uh, perspective. Uh, there's some objectives that we set for the entire organization. We break it down to teams, and we can uh, break it down to individual objectives. And then we can basically measure to which extent we uh, achieve this. But what is even more important is the organizational learning that we want to embed in the teams themselves. And the question that I'm asking always at the end of the week or at the end of a project is, if you would run this week or this project again, what would you do different? Mm -hmm. And the next question, and is even a more insightful one, is explain me why you feel that with this kind of insight, this kind of change, could you have run better? And I'm not so much interested in the learning that you anyway have organically, but I'm interested in the learning that you could have had in the beginning already mm -hmm. that would have made this project easier. Dana, what I wanted to know is um, what kind of, how would you describe the culture inside of your company here? Is, are, you still a, are you still a startup culture? Do you have a scale-up culture or do you have a, a retail culture? Do you, I mean, you have an engineering culture. How would you describe it and how, how is, what's your influence on this, on this culture? The culture itself is certainly much more startup and scale-up as in retail. Um, at least what I have seen as retail culture is not something uh, that I would like to uh, see emerge too much here in the organization. While I respect very much our retail organizations, but uh, we certainly see ourselves much more as a uh, technology organization. And that is certainly also something what you can brief and uh, see uh, uh, everywhere here. So there's a lot of screens with dashboards and everybody's very data-driven. Yeah. My own role in this has actually transitioned or be basically complemented from uh, heading technology uh, to also heading the kind of at least the culture in the tech team uh, and being a kind of a chief culture uh, in, in this kind of respect. And what it means is also embracing and, and uh, reminding everybody that there are specific things that we should certainly put a priority on and a few things that we shouldn't make. So let me maybe give an example. So um, what happens if you're, if you're building kind of very large projects where you have also physical stakeholders in, uh, involved, like in a robotized fulfillment center, you have all kind of, you build a big uh, warehouse, you, somebody builds robots, etc. So there's a lot of pressure on timelines. Yeah. So we have a culture since the beginning always about engineering excellence. We need to build the best software that has the lowest possible maintenance. Mm -hmm. So therefore, I'm encouraging everybody and then chasing everybody to make sure that we are still building the least possible maintainable software that needs the least possible maintenance. Yeah. Because that is only the thing how we can uh, continue, well, how we can uh, really grow going forward. Yeah. And that is also part of the way how we afford to set up our KPIs. So one thing is, for instance, I'm looking carefully into how do we split our time in building new stuff, maintaining existing stuff, yeah. and operating our stack. Yeah. And what you see in many, many organizations is that operating a stack and maintaining is easily taking 50, 60, 70% of the time of or capacity of an organization. And that is very standard. Yeah. And it, we had a tendency that it also started to happen on our case. But I said, well, let's change ourselves and let's not take this as granted because you can find all kinds of arguments why it, should, uh, why it is like this. But let's say, let's change ourselves and say, maybe it is, should not be like this. Maybe we can do something. Maybe we can move from 50 to 5%. And obviously, 5% is a bit too bold as a goal. But in the end, you end up uh, with 15%, which is still a bigger piece, but uh, is certainly much, much better than 50. Yeah. And that is kind of the way or how I also drive the, uh, try to drive the culture to really stay very much focused on building as much as possible new stuff instead of focusing on maintaining existing stuff. So only 15%. That's your goal of... of, of 
maintaining, running the, the systems. And so 85% of resources would go into new stuff. This is certainly the goal. And, um, and, and that is also doable for many organizations if you force yourself. And that is usually, uh, that has two things. So for instance, it has also a software design and software architecture angle. Mm -hmm. So an example is if you design a software system, then many software systems are designed or software project plans are designed to actually build the first version with the least possible effort because you have a budget and you want to build, yeah. let's say, the initial scope. That's exactly not how we do this. What we do is we, are dis we know that a software system version one will have a version two, three, four, five. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking to uh, what is the effort that we need to put in the first version in order to have the least possible kind of next iteration maintenance effort in version two, three, four, five. So therefore building an uh, building the sum of all kind of maintenance across the entire supply chain, uh, mm -hmm. the entire project timeline, yep. and minimize this with the first type of build. So therefore our first builds will take a bit longer than others, okay. but it pays off in the end. So what percentage of your systems would you describe as, as legacy systems then? You have legacy when you have written the first line of code, which means that certainly there's, a, there's, there's legacy on our side. Yep. Um, if I would reformulate a little bit the question and say and ask um, which systems you would consider cutting edge or where you're really proud of uh -huh. uh, that you want to see front page uh, on a tech <laughs> magazine because which ones uh, you're a little bit uh, more happy that it's not uh, then uh, there are certainly uh, there are certainly uh, at least half of the systems I'm very proud of uh, in the way how we have built them uh, but there is something like 25% of maybe our tech stack that needs just a little bit more love uh, yeah. and we are putting a, a considerable amount of time also in uh, getting this part of the stack to the level where we, uh, where we should have it and where I want to see it. Okay, so there's a conscious effort to make sure that you don't create your own legacy or, or not too much legacy software systems that are too dependent on people that left the company and so on and so on. This is certainly uh, one of the main focus uh, points of our tech strategy. Mm -hmm. There's one additional one uh, where I'm also identifying on a regular basis, typically on a quarterly basis, what are actually the technical debt areas or the kind of the burning fires that I want to accept, let's say, stay SAR. Yep. And that is sometimes a bit painful for an engineer or a technology leader when you see a software system not in the best state. But if you identify a part of your stack being not mission critical, or maybe you don't expect significant changes over the next six or 12 months time, mm -hmm. then there's no need to actually bring it in a better state. Okay, let's talk about, we talked about your management style, let's talk about leadership, because I think that's two completely different things. Huh? You, you manage by organizing your teams and setting it up and, and the operating model and, and, and also creating a culture and so on. But leading is something different. When, when we enter the building uh, today and say, who you want to see, we say, oh, Dino, oh, Dino. So, so you, you're clearly uh, a serious leader in this organization as well. How would you describe your own leadership style and, and what are you expecting from the teams that you lead? How do you want them to lead their people? So there are probably two angles that are really important for me. So mm -hmm. for most of the things what I'm doing, I want to lead by example. So mm -hmm. which has a couple of implications. So which, uh, when we are running a project, when we are, um, when we are going for a specific goal, I need to be able and want to be also able to actually perform this in the same way as uh, somebody who is actually picking up the responsibility uh, the same type of uh, objective, this number one. But the second one is also, uh, I'm a big fan of leading by empowerment. So therefore, the goal is that 
I'm empowering as much as possible of the teams to take care of their kind of products and objectives and responsibilities as yep. much as possible. So therefore, my leadership style and my leadership objective is to get as much as possible obstacles and burdens out of their way that they can take the ownership that they need to. Okay. And if I, if I would go around here and talk to your team, what do you think they will say about you when you're not around? What's the, the good, the bad and the ugly that they would say about you? Um? Well, you certainly should do, and then uh, we will see a bit what the recording says. Um, uh, it's, it's very difficult to, to, to make this kind of uh, self-reflection. I think I'm a pretty strong, well, I'm, what, I'm, uh, what I'm focusing on, giving everybody enough freedom to grow. But on the other hand, I'm uh, certainly also, I'm not sure if you would call it demanding, but I'm certainly also have uh, high expectations. Um, I'm trying to have the expectations as fair as possible. So I have the same high expectations of myself, hopefully even higher. But uh, that is certainly also something what I, what I feel needs to bubble down uh, in the organization. But on the other hand, um, I certainly struggle sometimes uh, by, it is not directly micromanagement, but I love to go into the details, okay. which means that I just want to know the details where certainly some, uh, some teams are maybe, maybe a little bit annoyed sometimes, uh, left and right, uh, to which extent I want to go into the details. Mm -hmm. But I feel you can only in a meaningful way lead if you understand enough about the detailed substance. So therefore, I actually go into a lot of details of, uh, of many, many kind of tech projects. So you're busy with this great um, uh, venture, I would say, for, for seven years already. What is it that, that keeps driving you? What's, what's, what is the passion, the burning passion inside you? Uh, what at the end of the week needs to happen so that you are a happy man? I think what keeps, what keeps me rolling, what keeps me uh, awake at night, but also what gives me a lot of energy is mm -hmm. that it is pretty clear everything what we do is actually just 10% of the entire picnic story. So there's so much more ahead of us and behind us that it's just worth working on it. Mm -hmm. uh, the second thing is working with an excellent team. Really, most people are so strong in what they do. Mm -hmm. It's extremely rewarding. So you see also how everybody has grown along this kind of journey. Yep. And the, the kind of the style that we apply there is everybody runs a project or takes a responsibility that is at this time a little bit above his current uh, skill set. So therefore, you have something, it's, it's a kind of a stretch goal, but it is, so it's doable, mm -hmm. but it's certainly above uh, the current kind of, as usual, kind of, uh, uh, kind of. Uh, we see many people here in the offices. I mean, if, 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 if uh, we do other interviews, there's many empty offices nowadays. Is, is, the, is, is all your team here in Amsterdam? Do you want them all to be uh, together or are they a little bit everywhere in the world as well? So we have a very simple kind of culture. We have team days where uh -huh. every team comes uh, to the office. So mm -hmm. for instance, every sub-team sub uh, or product team in tech mm -hmm. has one day in the week where everybody meets in the office. For the other days, uh, they decide themselves how often uh, they want to come to the office. For most teams, it is usually three, four days. We have many that also come for the entire week. Mm -hmm. um, what we have done over the last two years is a transition from an office as a workplace to an office as a meeting place. We're not there yet uh, completely and we are not completely done, but what we want is that this is a space where everybody can uh, discuss ideas with them, uh, where they can get inspired, where they yeah. can inspire each other, where they can actually acquire new knowledge. And the actual work is happening maybe remote, maybe here, but not per se uh, in the office. Okay, so, so it's, it's your conviction that to really have well-functioning and productive 
technology teams that they need to spend enough time together and 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 then like you say three four days a week is is, is really really good and that it's impossible to really have uh, effective uh, technology teams if they only meet once a week they're probably two interesting observations that I have from the last uh, last uh, uh, two years. Number one is, if you want to be truly effective as a remote-only organization, you need to be remote-only born. It is very, very hard to trans transform from an organization that has been uh, actually uh, working uh, on-prem uh, mm -hmm. you know, as an organization to a remote organization. So for instance, uh, yeah, GitLab is an ex excellent example that has been done really great work uh, as a remote-only team. Yeah. Um, the second one is, in a remote environment, you can uh, relatively well continue existing projects. We have done this and those projects run very well. It works for Google, for Apple, etc. What you realize is very difficult, very creative new projects cannot in, a, in an efficient way start it remotely. Yeah. You need to be together. You need to see eye on eye with a whiteboard, etc. Uh, what do you want to build? How do you want to build it, etc. Okay. So this is something. Uh, we have not succeeded. I have spoken with many, many people in the industry. Many have struggled with it. Would love to hear uh, who has succeeded, but I have not, uh, not seen anybody so far. Let's dive a little bit deeper in who you are as, as leader and, and, and as a person as well, because I'm convinced that your personal success and, and that you have, um, well, uh, manifested in this organization has to do with who you are as, as, as a person, your personality. And you shared with us that your MBTI personality type is you are an ENFJ, also known as a protagonist. And these are uh, people with extroverted, intuitive, feeling and judging personality traits. And these are typically very warm, forthright types that love helping others. And they tend to have strong ideas and values and they back their perspective with creative energy to achieve their goals. It's a nice description, right? <laughs> Sounds great, <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> and so what I'm gonna give you is, is five typical strengths okay. of people with your personality. And so give us, give us some feedback. Which ones do you relate to and can you yeah. give an example? So uh, protagonist ENFJs are typically very receptive. They're very reliable. They're very passionate, altruistic and charismatic. Where do you um, put yourself there? So I'm absolutely, certainly passionate about the stuff that I do because I simply love it. Um, I'm certainly also, uh, I try to give back and uh, have a kind of an altruistic uh, nature for the simple reasons that what I'm doing now is based on uh, basically all kind of people that have helped me along the way mm -hmm. that uh, have built me up in, uh, in a way that allow me to do what I do now. So therefore, I also love to give back. That's the reason why I do a lot of coaching, mentoring, and okay. also building uh, or helping other startups uh, to, to, to get started. Um, and maybe the other kind of a key, uh, key trait that is, uh, that is really uh, important there is also kind of empowering and encouraging a team mm -hmm. that uh, to really get the best out of themselves. Okay. Tell us a little bit more about what you do with, with other uh, software companies and how you mentor and coach them. So I started uh, with coaching mentoring already 10 years ago uh, as part of a couple of accelerators. So there were startups that are actually pre-funding that had a nice idea, mm -hmm. but that were actually building up a first prototype or an MVP mm -hmm. that they wanted to pitch to investors. And I gave them a little bit of feedback from a tech side, from product side, from people side, but also how to actually position 
this kind of uh, mm -hmm. startup in a way that it can get funding. Yep. And what I really like there is working with very young, very ambitious and very open-minded people yep. that are able to really translate in a very creative way an idea yep. into a first prototype. And then I'm uh, thinking myself, is this something what has enough kind of uh, possibilities, opportunities and potential going forward? And then I've also invested in, in many of those that I see then arising along the time. Invested and invested as well? You're putting money in these companies yeah. as well? Okay. Okay. Yes, well, that's uh, <laughs> certainly something what, what, what I very much enjoy and that is, is, is a way also of giving back in the yep. end uh, uh, to see also how, how, how the startup ecosystem can, uh, can evolve further. Uh, we all know that uh, US and China has a very, very strong kind of a startup ecosystem, mm -hmm. but we can build the same in Europe if those that have been part of the tech ecosystem for a longer time yep. give also again back with time, but also with a little bit of angel money. Okay. We talked about your strengths. Now let's flip the coin and let, let's look at the dark side of, uh, of, of people with your personality type. So I'm going to mention five development areas, weaknesses, and, and you tell us where you recognize them and, and how maybe you have overcome these weaknesses. Uh, so people with an ENFJ, they sometimes are unrealistic. They can be overly idealistic. They can be condescending. They can be too intense and they can also be overly empathetic. So where do you recognize yourself? You can't be, have these weaknesses to be a top leader, so how do you develop yourself in that? I certainly uh, have, I think unrealistic is maybe a too, too strong word, but I, what I like is I'm uh, trying to aim for goals mm -hmm. that are going uh, uh, definitely beyond what most of the team uh, can yeah. uh, currently imagine. Dream big. And that is uh, certainly this kind of dream big, act small kind of mm -hmm. uh, uh, philosophy that we all in the startup world have. And that has brought us very far, but as I'm certainly uh, still pushed this, uh, push this very hard. Um, I'm uh, trying to stay uh, for this kind of discussions always as much as possible empathetic, because I certainly want to relate uh, yeah. to the rest of the team, but I'm trying to really push everybody and encourage everybody to get the best uh, out of themselves. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I want to be also protective to the team that is nobody overstretching. Yeah. So we saw during the COVID phase, as an example, that um, if you don't have any longer the separation between uh, work and kind of non-work, yep. um, because everybody's working from home, so therefore all waking hours are potentially work hours, um, that you need to also start to really set up measures so that uh, at some point you need to also block time for non-work. Mm -hmm. And that is something where I also am, am pretty passionate about, because we are building a business for the long term with people that hopefully stay with us as long as any possible. Yeah. But we can only really benefit altogether from this kind of strategy if you're still healthy in a year, in two years, in five years time. So other weakness was idealistic or, uh, or intense. Are, are you too intense for the people around you? Um, uh, I certainly got this kind of feedback. Um, I'm uh, over time, I got less of that feedback. Mm -hmm. And what I'm thinking now, as you are mentioning it is, did just people around me uh, got, <laughs> uh, got acquainted with that kind of trade or uh, did I also develop further? I guess it's a mix of both. Mm -hmm. um, what I'm trying to do, and this is more kind of the, the, the true uh, story behind intensity, is I'm trying to bring energy and also a lot of kind of focus mm -hmm. on a topic that helps people to truly, let's say, truly 
see between what is important on a project or on a kind of an, uh, a work that we are currently doing yep. versus what should we not do at all. Okay. Because committing to work is very easy. Committing to not doing something is so much harder that most people are actually struggling more with saying no instead of saying yeah. So Daniel, you're here in a very, very fast-growing environment. I mean, you started in, in, in seven years ago from scratch, and now you have a big team, big company, billion revenue. So how do you develop yourself in, in, in that environment? How do you make sure that you keep up and that you keep leading, uh, leading the teams? So there are three things that really uh, um, are important for me here. Number one is I'm uh, regularly meeting with peers, and uh, with peers means not so much peers that are exactly the same level where we are now at Picnic, mm -hmm. but usually uh, peers that are leading tech organizations that are one or two steps ahead of uh, me, because that is basically where I want to grow into, that's number one. Number two, I'm a, uh, I love to read, so I'm reading a lot of books and uh, also try to develop myself uh, through that. And the third one is also a very careful self-reflection process mm -hmm. where I'm trying to identify what worked for me, what did I do well, but also what did I not do well. Yep. Uh, in the same way as we challenge our teams, I do this also for myself. Okay. You're active in our CIOnet community and, 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 and uh, so do you learn also from CIOs, from, from let's say more traditional companies and what do you learn from them? I love the CIOnet uh, community because it is an, an, um, a community of CIOs that are working actually in a very different environment myself. So. When I talk to people from uh, Netflix or from Spotify, then uh, this is a tech environment that I can very closely relate to. When I look more to the uh, environments of uh, CIO.net or the companies, then these are actually technology leader CIOs that are working in an environment and uh, tackling challenges that I don't have myself, mm -hmm. but actually I should very actively work on on preventing to have those kind of challenges. So therefore, it gives a very nice uh, and an interesting challenge or a thinking challenge also for myself. Okay. So, uh, Daniel, in your professional life, but maybe also in, in your personal life, who are the important people that you have learned from, your mentors, people that you look up to? So there are quite a few people, and it's, it's, it's hard to really single out a, a single person. Uh, I was very close to my grandma, uh, who was actually had a very big family uh, and was in a very empathetic way, helping everybody to build up, uh, encouraging everybody to mm -hmm. go through uh, the entire school and academic systems where, well, I come uh, from a family of academics. So okay. uh, while she herself was certainly uh, not an academic, uh, so that is also very nice where I saw that also as a leader, in this case a mom, uh, you can uh, also encourage uh, your your kids to grow into a profession that you yourself cannot immediately relate to. Mm -hmm. So that is certainly a, a very important angle. And then uh, from um, from more the uh, kind of engineering leadership side, I have a, a strong network of engineering leaders up to the point uh, that uh, we have we have met a few times, Werner Vogels, etc. That uh, is very inspiring and is very helpful to get a kind of a reflection on what do we do now, in which way versus where do we want to be. Okay. You have an, an, an active coaching program for yourself as well. You have a, a mentor, a coach that, that, that helps you in, in, in your own professional and personal um, development. So we have uh, some executive coaching uh, set up ourselves. Uh, this is more kind of on demand. Uh, I'm on a couple of other coaching programs where we, in a, in a, in a less structured, but in, in a more ad hoc way, uh, meet together. So, uh, for instance, with McKinsey, there's a technology uh, training program that, that we are attending. 
that helps us more on a very specific topic or a very specific challenge that we are tackling. So an example is said, there's a lot of challenges that in the current economic climate that we need to tackle. So there we got also some very specific uh, coaching. Okay. Is there a personal mantra that you have, a saying that comes back that, that really helps you in your work or your life? What I always tell to myself is nothing is impossible. If you have the right angle, the right approach, the right team mm -hmm. and the right preparation, then you can certainly achieve everything. However, what is absolutely fundamental is, is that you are well prepared and the preparation for us and that goes a little bit back to the culture that we have built here. So our culture, you can summarize with think, there, do. And think means uh, especially focusing on the point of upfront careful analysis and preparation and thinking through the kind of different scenarios yeah. before you do something. And this there do means basically go for the moonshots instead of just incremental improvements yeah. and do basically focuses there on Excellent. executional power, execution, excellence. Because there's any kind of idea without execution, it has no value. Okay. You mentioned values. Let's, let's talk a little bit about your core values. You, you shared with us that you have two kids, 11 and 14. Um, what are the core values that you yourself live by and that you're passing on to your, to your kids? I think what is there, so as a parent, you certainly act in a slightly different ways than in a business context. But what I find very important is um, integrity and staying true to yourself. Mm -hmm. And that is especially uh, because we are talking about, about uh, parenthood um, is in today's time not so easy with the entire peer pressure that you have in social, uh, social networks, etc. Yeah. Where staying true to yourself, building up confidence and also an own personality that is not just uh, shaped by the either the kind of the most impressive or the least uh, conflicting uh, yeah. average of the people that you're close to um, uh, is, is, is a real value that I hope that I can give to my kids. Okay. In your professional life, you obviously you've been very, very successful so far. So, but we all make our mistakes, right? So we all make our mistakes. We all make, make, have our failures. So could you pick maybe what was your most brilliant failure from the last uh, 10, 15 years and what you learned from it? We had to start. <laughs> um, so maybe let me pick one or two uh, that are um, kind of more uh, exposed reflections. So um, when we were going live uh, in August 2015, um, we were thinking a little bit about what is the kind of the initial go live scope. And uh, we're thinking about, okay, we need to have an app. Uh, when we go live, uh, there should be nice products uh, and we should be able to deliver this to product. But we had a debate. Should we have a functionality to add a product to an existing order? And that would have taken us uh, to build us at this time only one or two weeks. So we said, well, let's do this at, at a later moment. Uh, go live is, is more important at this uh -huh. moment. Three years later, the entire industry basically moved into a mode where this became standard. We needed to implement this. But that was a kind of a legacy that we had to build up because not, uh, not doing it in the beginning, uh, which took instead of the two weeks in 2015, took us actually nearly a year to build because it was a major refactoring of the entire yeah. data model and lots of back-end back systems. So that is, uh, it's just a fuck up. So that is certainly, um, but the interesting thing, and that is where, what I'm asking myself, and I, I think what is important for every CIO, if I would go back now in time, what mm -hmm. could 
what should I have seen? What should I have known at this time point in time to not make this kind of decision, which is yeah. obviously exposed three years later, uh, was a wrong decision. But it's not so clear and obvious uh, what additional question I should have uh, should have asked. Mm -hmm. And maybe one additional one or a second one is there is a lot of um, we have built. We have in the beginning put a lot of focus on building all kind of initial software system, but mm -hmm. data was uh, in the beginning too much an afterthought. Okay. We had only built a kind of analytics and reporting systems, but this kind of feedback loop, which uh, the kind of soda architecture that we talked earlier about, um, if we would have started with this much, much earlier, we could certainly have even faster grown than uh, we have done in reality now. Okay. Last question on technology, because we love to discuss uh, or talk about technology, of course. If you look at what's out there today and, and, and the most and the newest stuff that you're working with, what is for you the most exciting new technology around these days? So there's a lot of stuff obviously going on and we all have seen AI and machine learning, deep learning, IoT, blockchain and many, many and AR, VR, etc. And um, I have tried and prototyped with all of those kind of technologies and that is a little bit of kind of my uh, uh, this is my, my weekend hobby. Um, what I'm getting very excited about is more the foundational or deep technologies that are unlocking uh, the kind of the next generation technology. For instance, as an example, uh, I'm not so, not so excited by crypto or by NFTs, but the underlying blockchain uh, technology is something of what I find very exciting. And what I feel here is that what we have seen with NFTs and crypto, for instance, mm -hmm. is most likely not even the kind of the innovation that will stay for very long or that will be the kind of the main driver for what blockchain can do. Okay. But there is other stuff that will probably make this kind of foundational deep technology a real winner on the long term. Okay, and where do you see blockchain opportunities in retail? So uh, the most obvious one and that has been pitched already since years is uh, the tracking of products from uh, the producer or from farm to fork. So that is uh, already since 2015 or so uh, pitched. We have tried it, but uh, interesting learnings here is blockchain tracking of products can only work if every party involved, and there's quite a few in a supply chain, uh, is actually working with a blockchain. And you have a lot of players there that are technology-wise certainly not on the level that they can use a blockchain. So that means you have essentially a blockchain with gaps, and it will not work if you have gaps in, in your blockchain. So that is, uh, that is just not, uh, not working. Maybe another technology, not so much to the picnic case, but uh, one thing what is, I think, very nice to think a bit about is uh, the merge of actual reality and virtual reality in mm -hmm. this kind of what is called AR, so augmented reality, yeah. uh, where we have seen, obviously, all our the kind of the, uh, Google classes in a few cases. But that is a little bit creepy and maybe not yet the case that uh, is to come. No. But there is most likely... Uh, there are scenarios, or you can imagine scenarios, where we will probably live only in augmented reality, mm -hmm. and a pure reality will happen maybe in your two weeks vacation where you go to digital detox, but the rest uh, of your day-to-day -day business will be uh, purely augmented and no longer actual reality. Pretty scary, no? Um, it is scary, but to some extent, uh, if you go back, people also found scary, for instance, the train uh, and the cars and, and trains, etc. Yeah, yeah. And there have been rules to the trains should not go faster than 30 kilometers per hour because uh, people thought that uh, you cannot uh, the cars stay would stop sane. Exactly, exactly, like. exactly. <laughs> yes. So, um, how, how about this? I'm, I'm pretty fascinated at the moment about this uh, AI 
uh, prompted art creation like Mid Journey and yeah. Dali and so on. You're following up on that as well? I am absolutely uh, love this kind of trend. I like to, I like to see this. So and there is um, so we are here in Amsterdam. So uh, let me take a uh, Dutch example. So there is all kind of examples where what would be an additional picture of Van Gogh or von uh, Rembrandt look like. So um, what is interesting and it opens up actually a much more fundamental question because this is essentially extrapolating a painter process or a creative process. And it's pure extrapolation. This is not. Um, um, creativity, at least not creativity in the way as philosophers would define this. But the question you can also ask the other way around, what is true creativity in a world where actually extra extrapolating past creativity is something that you would consider pretty much also creativity. So when we when you hear this kind of uh, song uh, of, let's say this additional song of the Beatles that was yep. uh, created, uh, um, some people like it, some not. But you certainly see that there are elements in it that make it clearly a Beatles song. Yeah. Daniel, you said uh, you spent your weekends figuring out, trying out the latest trends and, and, and new stuff. But outside of technology, what, is, what, are your, what, what, what do you spend your time on, your free time on uh, in the weekends? So when I'm not spending uh, time with family or with technology or yep. all the other things, then I uh, love to be on the water and do a bit of kite surfing and uh, enjoy a little bit with the wind, the waves. Okay. On your personal life, if I may, um, if you look back on your personal life, what would you consider is the best thing that has ever happened to you? I think life itself is something that is great that it happened. Um, <laughs> what are uh, the chances, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, there are many, many things that actually accumulate to uh, what I do now and uh, what I was able to, uh, to achieve. Mm -hmm. But... Um, I think a nice kind of a very important event uh, was when um, when we finished Fredbear, so this uh, B2B business, sold it to a technology holding company, and then actually could rethink again what comes next, okay. which is a very nice moment uh, where I did not immediately jump in the kind of the next opportunity in tech, but uh, said, well, maybe it's time to uh, do a PhD and let's uh, actually do some academic work in order to reset your thinking and to rethink what comes next. That was a certainly a very, very important moment. And what was your PhD about? So my PhD was about, uh, in theoretical computer science, about software verification. So software verification is you have a property um, of a system, which for instance, it doesn't crash or it has this kind of latency, and you try to prove uh, this property for an actual program. Mm -hmm. And that is a problem that has been solved for what is called sequential programs. So on a single core, on a single processor. Uh, and I uh, developed a methodology that you can uh, uh, do those kind of proofs also for largely distributed systems. So basically multi-cores, uh, multi-cloud, etc. But also systems where the connection between the nodes is not reliable. Like in a, for instance, normal cloud environment, you cannot rely on that uh, you have a stable network connection between the nodes. Pretty deep stuff. Uh, it is certainly something uh, not super practical, but uh, it, we had a lot of fun there. That's true. That's true. Well, we talked about the best things uh, that happened in your life. Um, let's look at the other side as well. If you if if you care to share, what what was maybe the worst thing that has ever happened to you in your personal life, and how what did you learn from it? How did you overcome that? So I think uh, what was a very uh, um, 
influential and deep moment was uh, when my dad uh, died in uh, 2002 uh, because he was leading a, leading a larger business, was very influential in the business, but also at home for the, uh, for the family. And I was at this time only 20 and um, I was certainly uh, not yet mature enough to uh, properly cope with the situation. But it gave me also a little bit of kind of a perspective that you should spend in a very meaningful way time with family, friends, but also on the business side. You should, right. um, the kind of the business opportunities that we go after are ones that we also really deeply care of and that are not only ROI-wise uh, make sense. Yeah. If you reflect on yourself, what would you say is your own personal um, most important gift that you received from life and that you now can express in what you do? The biggest gift is probably that I can stay dependent on whatever kind of circumstances very positively minded. So I can see end of the light of the tunnel in uh, most uh, de facto all circumstances. And that is something what is probably a key trait for every, every leader uh, because people are looking up to you. Uh, if you're not positive, your team cannot be positive. So that is absolutely necessary, but it helps also to actually think beyond the kind of, uh, beyond today's kind of challenges and think a bit about if you solve this challenge, what is the next challenge that you should tackle mm -hmm. and already prepare yourself that you're in the best possible position to tackle the tomorrow's or next week's or next month's kind of challenge. Super. Daniel, thank you so much for your hospitality and uh, yeah. welcoming us uh, here in your headquarters in, uh, in Amsterdam. And I wanted to uh, end this, uh, this interview with the uh, traditional question. What is the advice that you would give to young professionals that uh, want to follow in your footsteps and that also want to become uh, a CTO of, of a large organization or a, a, a big uh, scale up? A, a billion dollar uh, company. So what is the advice that you would give to them? So first of all, before I give uh, answer to your question, um, it should not be the goal to become a CIO or a CTO, but the true goal should be that you uh, work on something meaningful that you can be at the end of the day proud of. And then for a technology leader, uh, the most important trait that you should uh, build up along the journey is that you are built a conviction about a direction that you're going and that you can convince your team that this is the right way to go along with. This is number one. Number two, maybe a kind of a bonus one. Um, uh, technology is only a tool. The true thing, let's say the true disruption is always in product. It's a kind of a dual of, pro, uh, of tech, mm -hmm. but think a bit about how can tech enable new business and how can business be basically powered by new technologies. If you find this kind of uh, duel between business and tech, you always will have a winning formula. Okay. And on that note, thank you so much, Daniel. It was a pleasure. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you.